0: Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy, pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter-shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
0: Hello and welcome to Brain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan and this week I chat to superb storyteller Sheila O'Flanagan about why she only writes books with female leads, her skillful ability to subtly provoke thought while engaging and entertaining her readers. We also chat about her childhood dreams, her forward-thinking father, The Power of Practicality, literary snobbery, banking manuals, floppy disks and The Sky at Night. You and I have never met before, and I'm very grateful that you have agreed to come and be a guest. But you did a recent interview with Roisin Ingall in The Times, and I just thought, gosh, I really like this woman. I really like her honesty and how you were speaking about very important things, actually, in the article, which I want to touch on later. But also, then I laughed. I didn't know that we both live in this same leafy suburb, which I just thought, I I mean, you know, living here, that's all anybody ever describes where we live. (laughs) you <laughs> I, no, know, I, just I know, my my road is not leafy at all. Really. <laughs> <laughs> well, ours is, and actually, let me tell you that it's not the best of things because the leaf turns to mush and and well, actually, I know everywhere. because we
2: have trees overlooking the back of our garden and the, the leaves yeah, come down. And they fall down, a disaster. Yeah, yeah. yeah,
0: but I have to say, I do love them. But anyway, one of the things you were talking to her. Obviously, you have your new book out, which I really do want to talk to you about. I've had the privilege of reading it and really enjoyed every minute of it. Enjoy your two characters in it. Deera and Grace. Yeah.
2: Deera actually is an unusual name. I'd never heard that before, is it? Well actually I had read it years and years in a book I read when I was a child and it stuck with me. I thought ah, it was a really nice name. i yeah. said the character in the book was Irish even though the book was not about Ireland or Irish right. people generally. And I said it does sound like an Irish name and it just stuck with me and, and I when I was thinking of what am I going to call this character it just, it popped just seemed up. to be the right name for her. Right, yeah, yeah. And it is because
0: it's a little bit quirky and unusual and she's kind of got an, she's an artsy kind of character. And just sort of playing back to some of the things that you spoke about in your article with Roisin and the book itself. And you were talking about some things, really, and, and I think they're very important things. And actually, I've talked with another guest around similar issues, is around when you write fiction that's mainly read by women, um, that there's a snobbery. yeah that you write books that sell by the truckload. (laughs) I love this. You see, this is the win for me, you know. I mean, who sells the most books? Look, at the end of the day, your truck is with the fact that there is this sort of snobbery, you know. And I think actually what was said really in the article, which was horrifying to me, was that the Irish Times had not interviewed you for 20 years, despite the fact that you've 25 25 books. 25 yeah. books. They last interviewed you on your third novel. Yeah. Um, you've
2: sold about 10 million books. Slightly less than 10. No, <laughs> I always no. get very uh, edgy when people okay. say 10 because it sounds so many and it's about nine. But <laughs> <That's> <laughs> oh, a give, give,
0: give or take a million. Yeah, well, I, it does. And royalties yeah. make a difference. But nonetheless, it's millions of books. Yeah. And as a non fiction writer, I can tell you that that's just uh, so enviable. Not, Not as most people would think about the money. That's not it. I don't know about you, but certainly from my perspective, I write because I have information I want to share with people. And that only gets to them if they read the book. Yeah. So for me, it's gosh, I wish it could reach more and more and more people. I mean, to be honest, what you get for each book doesn't add up to very no, much no, anyway. People think you're
2: rolling in it yeah. actually all the time once you've had a book published. But no, people do have kind of distorted ideas. Yeah, about yeah, what- yeah.
0: But I spoke to actually Ruth Gilligan, who also feels mm-hmm. very strongly like you do, about this irrational snobbery because for me anyway the only measure about how whether one book is better than another is the quality of the writing or the theme or or the topic the genre is irrelevant that's just whatever appeals to the reader she kind of has a flip thing she wrote she's the youngest irish person ever to top the charts she wrote her first yeah yeah i know i know really novel yeah. yeah yeah at 17 so i interviewed her for season 1 of this and we chatted we have a connection going back before that we used both act i played her mother in fair city oh right years ago so she wrote that first book when, when she was a teen and she followed up and she sold very very well but then as she grew up and matured she actually studied literature and she now lectures in creative writing and so she wanted to move on and explore literary fiction and write different works because her first books were actually about her life, they were about teenagers not particularly her life but things that matter to her and she said that's how she views her writing is what is of interest to her so studying literature means that literary writing is of interest to her. But she says what really bothers her is she's asked to go to and speak at literary festivals. And really what they want her to say is she's seen the light.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know? Yeah. Well, literary festivals are kind of are one of those things that you can take or leave to a certain extent because sometimes I'm not sure who they're catering for, you know, and are they there to make people feel good about their book choices or bad about their book choices? Do you know? I do. You have an interesting story to tell about a literary festival. Do you want to say? (laughs) Well, it was in in the interview, wasn't it? And so it was really just about... I think it was the first literary festival I ever went to. And and you must have been excited to go. I was r- r- tr- absolutely thrilled. Yeah. I thought this would be great. Um, I was asked along and it was outside Dublin and we were staying overnight and everything. I thought this would be fantastic. And um, like my book at that point was uh, number one in the charts. It was my second book. It was Caroline's Sister. A big doorstopper of a book, how I wrote it, I don't know. <laughs> um But I was really proud of it and pleased to be asked. But when I got there, the person who was moderating our section... Was it a man or a woman, can I ask? It was a woman. Was it? Yeah, yeah. Really, I felt even worse about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she said to me, yeah, I'm introducing you and I don't know anything about you. And there was a bit of me that immediately said, well, you should have found out a little bit about me because you're you're in charge of this. But she said, tell me a bit about yourself and and what's your book called? And I told her and I said it was number one in the charts. And she said, yeah, we... we don't count that and I the just felt like I was about two inches <laughs> yeah. high you know yeah. and I thought well why did you ask me if it like if if why am I here you know yeah. why, why am I here because she was so dismissive about it the gas part about it was as well was that I was on a panel with a very literary writer and a poet and I thought oh my god when I realised it I went oh my god and we'd been told that we could read from our work and we could only read for ten minutes exactly and um My 10 minutes was down to about two minutes, actually, by the time I read way too fast because I was so shocked by all this. And then they introduced somebody who, who hadn't originally been on the panel, who was a local writer, and they read for about half an hour. Was that a male? Yeah. No, I,
0: I hate to gender this, but I know from my own profession, you'd be speaking at, you know, events or, you know, academic stuff and you would be told, we have five minutes each, we have 10 minutes each yeah. and there would be timers and the women would be exactly, exactly yeah. on time. And I don't know, time and time and time again, the men would go and the timer would say your time is up. I have more to
2: say. Yeah. And just this, I have this right. I know, <laughs> I know. It, it, anyway, th- it was just one of the more kind of horrible moments for me, yeah. But like you're saying about those festivals, I was at another festival where we were asked, "What order do you want to speak in?" And, and I said, "I don't care." But again, we were told, "You have ten minutes," and I did my speaking thing. And this guy said to me, do you mind if I go last? Because I prefer to have a bit of time to calm myself down." And I'm going, "Fine." And of course, he went last. And twenty just minutes later, stopped. we're just sitting yeah. there. And I'm going, "Oh my god!" So I kind of copped onto a few. Yeah. A few things like
0: that. Yeah, 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 you do. You kind of learn and you, yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, I've not done anything like that, but uh, I say this sometimes that to guess, uh, I don't know whether it's just me or it's part of the human condition, but whenever I'm researching my guests, which I'm horrified, I mean, that just shows that that person was totally unprofessional. I've moderated sessions. Before I do it, you know, you research the person's bio, you find something interesting about them. You know, you find what they're famous for or what they're
2: good of. And that's part of your little intro of them. And I mean, that's just doing your job. Yeah, and I thought that too. I mean, that was my first thought was, why have you not found out something about me because I'm here? Interestingly enough, we were asked to another event once and there was a group of of women writers. I don't really feel that the literature or non-literature is a gendered thing, really, although it is in a certain way. But... It wasn't a great event, but anyway, we we were all there and we were mingling as you do. It's one of these things where you host a table, right? And uh, so we were mingling, and like there were a lot of really good, very strong, very well known and good women writers there. And the only person who was asked to read f- from a book was the one man. No. Yes. And, and and actually, I left that event as soon as I could because I just thought, and I never, when I've been asked by the person who organised to do it again, I said, I said no, no. no. Anyway, it's an interesting thing that literary fiction and genre fiction, as though literary wasn't a genre of of its own. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I just wonder why people feel it's important that a book should be maybe hard to read.
0: Yeah. So like that, when I read, I'm always looking for commonalities, you know, that mm. that's what I'm saying about that, you know, what have I got in common with this person? I suppose that's, you know, if you're going to have a conversation with someone, you want to have something to speak about that's of interest. Or for me, it's, oh, how, how can I relate to that? And, and it's funny um, in academia. It is very similar, snobbery. Listeners to the podcast will know, and I won't repeat it again, but I didn't go to university till I was 42, which is something I want to talk to you about <laughs> in a little bit. Okay. Uh, and so I came from a regular world and a regular life. And so you're observing something that pretty much most academics have come right up the ranks through and haven't lived outside of that world. So there's incredible snobbery. There's also glass ceilings and big differences between males and females. And I love men. I'm not going to harp on, on that, but, you know, Where you do see there's gender issues and discrimination, you know, um, it is worth mentioning it. But there's that snobbery uh, there too. I would see it in terms of academic publications. And when I completed my undergrad and my PhD, I followed what was supposed to happen, which was write academic papers. And I thought, oh my God, I can write. Oh my God, I have a paper published. Mm. And oh my God. And then I kind of realized, you know, these are like trying to read another language. You know, there's this whole way you write it. And it's it's almost about, you know, when I'd be reading papers, what is it they're trying to say here? You know, and it's like, why do they pick the most obtuse word on the planet when there's a perfectly normal, everyday word that everybody would understand? Uh, And that's actually how I ended up doing what I do, which is actually taking all that dense writing and turning it into very easy to understand key messages for people that have paid for the research in the first
2: place. Well, that's the kind of interesting thing as well. Is it's like, you know, if you want somebody to, to read and understand and empathise with what you've written in whatever way that is, whether it's fiction or non-fiction, but, but get the drift of it, why make it difficult f- for them? You know, and then maybe I I kind of think to myself, okay, as I say that, it's myself, well, you know, if you're writing a particular work of literature and you want to write it so that every word is a kind of a gleaming jewel and things like that. I understand that as a way of writing. I absolutely do. But for me, when I'm writing the story and the characters are more important Mm -hmm. and, and getting to know the character. Is more important than being dazzled by the brilliance of my prose. Your your prose and your yeah,
0: and there. Although at the same time, I'm kind of thinking my prose is is okay. Do you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, I get that too. That some people, it's the love of language that drives them. You know, I think there's space for everything. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that one is particularly better than the other. Mm. You know, I think you will find individuals who are better at what they've chosen than other individuals. But that's like saying watercolour is better than oil you, you,
2: do, do you know what well, I that's mean? That's exactly right and, and I mean some literary fiction is desperate Yeah Do you know you're reading you're going why have I even picked this yeah. up this is terrible and it's terrible writing and it's terrible full stop Yeah Some genre fiction is equally desperate Yeah But there are good in both and there's brilliance in both. Yeah, and clearly there's a hunger for because your books sell by the
0: truckload, I will say it again. And actually, if you haven't, if you haven't read (laughs) The Women Who Ran Away, which is kind of an unusual title, actually, when you read the book, it really is a riveting read. It's really, really an enjoyable read. And, uh, you know, I will put my hand up here. I have to do a lot of reading for my work and a lot of reading for my writing. And because I went to university late, I had to catch up on, you know, and a lot of that. So actually my fiction reading, my reading for pleasure sort of fell down a bit. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the joys of this podcast now is what's happening by accident is a lot of people who really interest me actually turn out to be writers (laughs) in a way. Um, Comedians too have popped up, believe it or not. But I think it's because they're people who are interested in the human condition. And that's Mm -hmm. what I'm interested in, is the human condition. But for me, it's from the brain perspective. You know, what has the brain got to do with how we behave and do these things? So I think it's a kind of a common interest. But my choice then, say, if I was to pick a book for pleasure would be psychological thrillers. Yeah, you know, that would yeah. that would be my thing. I kind of, you know, get me inside the person's head. Maybe if the person is, is going through something or maybe mentally unstable or, or whatever. But that's kind of what I would pick. So I would not normally have picked. And I've said this to some other guests as well. This is what's lovely about this is my eyes are being opened up to works that I thought maybe weren't necessarily for me. And what's really interested me about reading reading your book is the insight into the human condition, uh, very honest, but also very empowering. This particular book is about, to me anyway, it's my reading on it, is women going on journeys of self-discovery and helping each other to discover good and bad in themselves, which is good. And I see it as, it's, it's funny, just bits of wisdom in it that I kind of say, right, well, I write nonfiction, but I'm trying to do the same as you, just through a different genre, because yeah. I'm now Now, as you would probably are already as well, I'm working up a picture outline for my next book, Mm -hmm. which is exploring some of the themes that you've written, because I want to explore self and the construction of self and how we make self. And that's really what this book is about, about how these two characters have in a way seen themselves but through other people's
2: eyes are partly shaped by other people. I think possibly both of them were living their lives framed by other people. So suddenly they're in a situation where they're doing it themselves and making their decisions based solely on On themselves. And um, albeit that Grace is following her late husband's wishes. So she's, she's still somewhat corralled, but she's still doing it on her own. I mean, she's driving... In another country on her own, which she had which never done before. It's, uh, yeah, it's yeah. terrifying anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but she's doing it, you know. And Dira had thought her life was fine, but it was also based somewhat, you know, on what her partner wanted. Yeah. And now she has to make decisions for herself and only for herself yeah. as well. And um, so, yes, yeah, so, so that was what I wanted to write about. Was, yeah, was, yeah. And was getting very, and, yeah, and it's very out there. Yeah,
0: and it's very thought provoking. And it's kind of what I want to write about, but I, will, I, I won't be writing. Fiction, but I, I have to employ some form of storytelling and anecdotes. But it's funny, you know, I was not expecting when I picked up your book to find that it was actually exploring the same sort of thing that I want to explore in my book, but in an empowering way. They're both in empowering ways is, is what I'm saying. Mine is much more actually <laughs> No, no, mine is more obvious. It, it yeah. will be on a, well, if it gets published, but it will be on a self-help shelf and it will be people looking too. Whereas I think what's the wonder, because that's what I try to do is, I always say, say with my animations is, people don't want to be educated. They want to be entertained. And I always try to entertain people. So I'd make little animations and I want them to make them be entertaining because if they're entertaining, the educational message will just stick anyway. And I kind of think that's in a way with your... not that you're trying to educate people, but there's liberating and important messages there, but they've just been entertained and they kind of Well, yeah, I mean, I I
2: consider myself to be a storyteller. And when I worked in finance, I used to come home and a bit like what you were saying, you know, my reading for pleasure is very limited. I had economic books to read. I had lots of other things to read. And when I sat down to read for pleasure, I wanted to read something that was enjoyable and entertaining, but well written, you know. Yes. And so... I don't write for a target market, even though, as we said, mostly women would read my books. But I don't sit down and say, who am I writing for in that respect? But I do think to myself, I'm writing for the person I was, which was somebody who didn't have that much time to read, but wanted to lose themselves in a book. And I wanted it to be well written and I wanted the characters to be interesting and I wanted the story to have a certain meaning. And so, so that's what I wanted to do. And then in terms of the book's I write now, I always will have the female lead character because I think there there have been plenty of books of male lead characters and, you know, the women in them are always just a side issue to helping this guy on his journey, you know, and so I want my women to be having their own journey. I put them into situations that I find thought-provoking or interesting in a particular way and then I see how they work their way out of it and I want them to find... Sort of an inner strength that maybe yeah. they didn't know they had. Yes, so so that's the kind of thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it is. It's it's and, and I actually really liked both of the characters. We were actually I was talking in one of these other episodes to another writer, and and we we're actually talking about the importance that characters are likable. And but there is a trend in some novels to write characters that you don't need to like. And I, I d- yeah, I, they I, don't kind have of,
2: to be likable, but I think they have to be understandable.
0: Yeah, like maybe likable is not necessarily the thing. I suppose empathy or connecting. Yeah some way, you have to care what happens for them.
2: Absolutely, yeah.
0: You know, and without mentioning any names, but reading a book at the moment, I'm only halfway through it. I will finish it
2: for the sake of it, but I really don't care what happens Mm. any of the characters in it. And And I think that's a terrible thing in a book, you know, if it doesn't matter to you. If somebody took it away from you and you you wouldn't notice it wasn't there, you know, like I I feel it's important to care about the outcome and to care about at least one of the characters, how they're going to get it. Absolutely. And you have a few moments actually in the
0: book where, um, and I won't spoil it because it is kind of one of those books that you could spoil it by saying um, certain things about it. But there are a few moments where I thought your characters were going to do the wrong thing. Yeah. Well, what I thought was the wrong thing. Yeah. But that's exactly, that means you've just, you know, it's great. You, you've yeah. got me hooked that I care enough that, no, yeah. don't do that. That's not a good idea.
2: But I like that. I like the idea that a reader would be looking, would be invested enough in the yeah. character that there's they're looking at what they're doing or where they're going and thinking, oh my God, don't do that. That's terrible. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're going to regret that that. Yeah. Yeah. rest of your life. And or,
0: oh, gosh, no, I've been there. Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah. Or,
2: you know, what well, What would I do in that
0: situation? And I think, you know, I mean, I, human beings are storytellers. We make up stories about our own lives. That's how we make sense of the world. Mm-hmm. That's how your brain makes sense of the world. It's trying, always trying to find patterns. It's always trying to make connections because in doing so, it can function more efficiently. And so we make stories and sometimes the stories that we make are wrong. They simply don't make sense or they're because of previous histories or or whatever. And that's part of what I want to do when I'm empowering people is to get people to question the stories that they've made about their own lives or about their own capacities. And in a sense, that's kind of what Ken Grace's husband, in a way that's what he's got Grace to do, is question her own story about who she is. The partner, the stay at home mum, you know, that he does X, but actually he puts these challenges to her yeah. this quest really to test her own assumptions about herself. It's and to test her assumptions about him too. Yes, in the certain, yeah, that was certainly. kind of yeah. yeah, yeah, that was kind of interesting too. I do think it's quite shocking that the Irish Times hadn't interviewed you for 20 years given that every time you have a book the publicists would have been contacting every single newspaper I'd say. Well I I,
2: yeah I didn't expect them to I mean the Irish Times which is a paper I love and I contributed to for 10 years myself but um, they tend not to interview uh, writers of popular fiction.
0: Yeah. They tend to
2: veer towards the literary
0: side of it themselves. And that's again that's that form of snobbery really in a way or or a misnobbery that their I readers. Misconception, I think it's yeah. a misconception that their readers wouldn't read something like that, which can't be true because so many people read The Times. And even if you don't read someone's work, it's always interesting to read interviews about successful people or about creative people, because I would do that. Yeah. You know, there might be a filmmaker or, or an interview and you kind of go, gosh, I'm interested in... And in you wouldn't their-
2: expect to, to know the work of everybody who is no. interviewed. in in a paper or a magazine of course not and it's interesting to have your eyes opened or you kind of go oh gosh that person sounds good I must look up yeah, yeah, but um,
0: I mean, I suppose that's the whole point that, you know, that this publicity, but I am interested in the human beings and it, it's part of what this is about as well. Like, you know, how did they go from that to that? You know, how did they become successful? What, you know, what on their journey? You know, we talked to people on this podcast about surviving and thriving in life. You're definitely thriving um, as a writer. But I do think that certainly from my research, what jumped out at me um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that you survived something very challenging in your life teens, which was your father being terminally yeah. ill. And then he died when you yeah. were 19. 19. Yeah. And if I might ask, is there anything that you recall or, you know, was it writing, reading? Did something help you through that? Because that's quite a formative age, kind of loose.
1: Yes.
2: Yeah. D- um, well, my two sisters were younger, you know, wedding. so, so um, to some extent, I think the, being practical, is what helped me through that reading and writing probably didn't. You know, I okay. don't think so at that time. I think just having to be practical and just focus on the then there and now and you know getting through every day and having to do things every day okay. probably probably um, helped. And I was very close to my dad, right. so uh, it was very difficult when he was ill because he was very very ill. And of course, like it's, we're talking about fifty years ago, this well, one no much, no not, not, 50, not that no old. no They're no not, you're that old. That I'm not that old. <laughs> um, but it. I mean, we are talking about a long time ago. And treatment wasn't as good as it yeah. is now. He was. He was just really, really very ill. And actually, you know, the 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 one thing that I always felt was when he when he did finally um, pass away was just a sense of relief okay. because he'd been ill for so so long. And maybe. So he was ill through your teen years. Oh, then. from I, I think he was first diagnosed when I was about fifteen. Okay so he'd been ill all that time although he you know he would go into remission and would be all really hopeful but right so i think can i ask what it was stomach cancer he died oh no
0: right so yes back then yeah, it was yeah. just dreadful yeah Yeah. my grandmother actually died of um, she had bowel cancer and yeah. you know kind of went in they kind of opened her up and kind of closed her again but actually rather interestingly um, she'd been the doctor used to tell my mother that um, she was a hypochondriac just tell her to eat more because she would go with pain you know yeah. and that's actually something I've written about in my latest book is that it takes on average women four years longer than men to get a diagnosis because yeah. Not believed, yeah, because we tend yeah. to tell stories about it's yeah. interesting, we tell stories about our symptoms, and men come in with with the list with, yeah. yeah yeah, but we're not believed yeah. anyway, yeah. which is interesting, so yes, that
2: must have been awful and dreadfully painful and terrible
0: to watch him in pain.
2: yes, it was actually, it was really yeah. hard. I used to go in and do my homework sitting beside him um but you know, in all honesty, I've probably blanked a lot of that at this point. Okay. And not deliberately, you know, but it's a blob of time. Right. A blob of time, and it was just my dad was sick. Yes. And I don't... And nothing else and really. And nothing else. Yeah, it's just yeah. my dad was sick and that, that was it. And actually, because we had this shop in the Ivy markets at the time. Right. Um, and that was our family business. And okay. we were more concerned with surviving. Yeah. Yeah. And my mum was kind of working in the shop for a while and then we had to sell the shop. And so, like I said, it was all those practical things. Yeah. Really. I think in one interview I
0: read with you, you do mention that, that and I, I thought it was really, really sound advice I can't remember and I'm paraphrasing your words and I wouldn't attempt to even go anywhere near your wonderful way with words, but I can't undo it. Y- mm-hmm. You know, what's happened has happened. So, yeah. right. What we- can we do now? Move on. It's, but- there's no use crying over spilt milk. Yeah. It just is. And, and I mean, I think that's wonderful advice across life. We spend far too much time in the past, Yeah. you know, worrying about stuff we did or
2: else worrying about things that might never happen. Um, shit happens. Well, it does. I mean, life is like that, you know, and, yeah. and you know, maybe again, when you're writing, you can bring the emotions that I might have had okay. about something like that, but into a different situation. Yeah,
0: I had wondered about that then, whether there was any connection with Ken and your dad and decisions that Ken
2: had made in the novel. Um, no, not really, but I was very conscious of somebody who was ill and who knew they weren't going to get better because we had those conversations, my dad and myself. So your dad knew, knew that? he was, oh. m- was not going to get better, we, w- but it was obvious, do you know. Yeah, was? yeah. Um, so I'm conscious about that, about people that know that you're in a situation. How do you deal with that? And again, people deal with it in different ways, yes. you know. So um, I think maybe I brought some of that emotion into it, but not on a conscious level
0: yeah and I, but I, I think there's a couple of things that struck me when you were writing about that, and that was when Grace talks about, I, I don't think it's giving very much away to say that Ken had motor neuron disease. Yeah. I mean, it's the premise of the outset of the yeah. novel, really. But Grace, at one point, after Ken has had a diagnosis, says, oh, motor neuron disease, that's what Stephen Hawking has. Mm-hmm. And you talk a bit about it, and I thought it was really very interesting and very true, Um, you know, that people living through terrible, challenging, chronic conditions, diseases, cancers, whatever, are often expected to be wonderfully brave. Yeah, (laughs) You know, I I thought it was a very kind of insightful thing to bring into the story.
2: It's like that one where they say you're fighting whatever disease it is and, you know, and then when you have died, you have lost the fight as though it's your own fault. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah. I, I think that that is a terrible thing to put on people in a lot of ways. You know, if you're ill and, you, yeah, you're dealing with it, fighting it is a kind of a It's a different emotional language to use, you know. Yeah.
0: And and I think it comes. I mean, we do use it is used in medicine. You know, we talk about our immune system fighting, you know, invaders to the bodies or whatever. So it is a language. It's a whole kind of cultural language that we've employed. So it's hard to move away from it. I understand
2: that. But I think when you're talking about a person, you know, their battle um, and sometimes people do use it for themselves. But, you know, I, I always feel that. It's putting a lot of baggage on somebody that if you're depressed or if it's not working or if you're feeling bad, it's on you.
0: Yeah. No, and I mean, I do think that it just kind of reading around your work as well is that your characters don't have to be super achievers that sometimes it makes women particularly look at and and you feel you fall short all the time mm. because how come they can do all that and I'm struggling with this one thing it can actually yeah. be very soul destroying to see that because we all have our own little
2: battles or big yeah. battles and here I am using the language again you see it's yeah. so kind of ingrained and but, but they are well they all, we all have something to overcome or we all we, have, we all have challenges do you know and one of the things that I like writing about is why do different people react differently to to certain things, you know, why when in one case, you know, say um, a marriage is broken up and the, the wife just gets on with it and the, yeah. maybe they should find out her husband has an affair and one wife just goes, well, right, that's it, you're out. And I'm closing all the doors and she, she just moves on and yeah. somebody else goes to pieces. What makes them react differently and why why is that? So I, I like exploring that. You know, I like looking at what makes people do different things. <laughs> you see,
0: that's exactly why I do what I do. <laughs> it's the exact same thing. You know, that's, Except my, I
2: can make it up. You're you can running, make it up.
0: Yeah, but I can. Well, part, of what, part <laughs> of what we do is kind of make it up. I suppose you could call theories yeah. you know, around that. So psychology is trying to understand the human condition and, and also things when it comes, because what you've just talked about there is sort of resilience. How come some women are resilient mm. or men when something happens and then others aren't? So I'm actually interested in finding out what is that difference and can we make this person who's not resilient more resilient? Yeah. So that's kind of what, what I'm kind of interested. Interested in doing, and I think you do the same, really, in your books.
1: Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh! Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello. Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
0: Now, just going back to your dad again, because I read somewhere, and he sounds very, very forward-thinking. I'm trying to figure back. It was probably 30-something years or maybe... <laughs> not the 50 that you Yeah, that you I know, think. that I blithely said. Yeah, yeah. that you blithely said. Um, uh, but he was obviously very ahead of his time because you said he had three daughters and if you said you wanted to be an astronaut, he said, well, go work hard, study for it. There was kind of no limiting. We're fairly close in age and I certainly know my father would have, a lovely man and I'm very fond of him and all the rest, but he would have had, Mm. he would encourage me to use my brain because he identified with my brain in the same, that I had a similar brain to me. He was a very honest man. He'd say, oh, you have my brain, the others don't. you know like But uh, he still would have had very very mm, old-fashioned ideas around women. After I had my two kids in my twenties, I decided I wanted to become an actor because I wanted them to pursue their dreams or whatever. And I mean, he still thought that acting was for women was a profession that was only one remove from <laughs> really? prostitution. Yeah, yeah. You know, he would have had that kind of mindset. So for me, it probably doesn't sound forward-thinking to women of today to hear that their father said this. But I can see that yeah. that at the time he would have been very forward-thinking. And I want to ask you two things, because you've spoken of childhood dreams to be a uh, number one world tennis player. <laughs> yeah. I want to ask you about that. And number two, to be an uh,
2: astronaut. astronaut. yeah. So the tennis player. Tell me about that. Well, I like I am a bit sporty. I wasn't sporty as a child, really, because I had asthma and that kind of oh, precluded right. me. I still have asthma, but, you know, okay. and it kind of precluded me from doing a lot of the running around games because I would end up wheezing or whatever. But tennis... I, not that you can stand there and just hit the ball but you know to start off people are just hitting the ball to you and I was quite good at it Right and um, I loved watching tennis and I loved Billie Jean King who's like just a hero to me because she was yeah. so amazing she was just a great player and she told it like it was yeah. and so I wanted to be her Right and um, so I thought, well, she's a number one tennis player. I would like to be a number one tennis player. We had no tennis courts anywhere near our house. Come here, you know, though. Did I you
0: play tennis? No, I didn't play tennis. No, 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 but on the street. So oh, on the street, yeah. Just, so, I don't know about your road. I'm actually from around the corner, believe it or not, Kingcour Avenue. But we had, you know, the concrete roads where you had the black tar. The down the middle, yeah. So, we would play Wimbledon on the street because you had the four squares. So, we used to play that. That on show jumping.
2: <laughs> didn't do the show jumping. Um, we sometimes played tennis over my mother's washing Line, Lord. Right. Death. Okay. Um, but we had a, a wall at the back of our house, and I used to just play against, against the it. wall. And I would be Billie Jean King, or I would be Chrissy Everett, or Virginia yeah. Wade, or somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I would practice different shots against the wall. But there were no tennis courts anywhere near us, and no chance of me ever playing right. tennis or being brought to play tennis because right. my parents wouldn't. You know, what is she talking about? Yeah.
0: I wonder, is it just thinking back? That's why I asked you the question. I bet you she's going to name all those. And, you know, because we did. We there wasn't a lot. I suppose, but you did watch tennis that, you know, for Wimbledon, it all stopped and everybody watched it and talked about it. But I suppose just thinking back now, I'm just looking at it. There wouldn't have been many women that we could kind of look up to as
2: being seen as top of their profession or in in sport or in in anything, really, when you think about it. And that was one of the things when I went into my Job in the central bank, and I looked around, and all of the managers were men, and all of the economists were men, and all of everybody that wasn't a clerical officer or something was a man, bar one or two women. And well, two women who were in. You know not bad uh, positions both of them were unmarried and a bit older and there was kind of jokes about them going home to their cats and things like that and then there was one married woman and she was the first i think the first woman who had been able to stay on after the marriage ban and a lot of people would say of her like why, you know, yeah. why is she doing this? Yeah. And um, and it really irked me that her boss was a guy who was way, way inferior to her in yeah. terms of ability and everything. But like he had this position and OK, she was younger and, and I suppose, she, you know, ultimately I think she may have overtaken him, I, I hope. But, like, there were guys there who were just... They just were promoted. And it does my head in, you know, when people talk about promoting the best person for the job and women shouldn't think they should be there as a token woman and stuff, where, where I'd look at guys I worked for and thought, the only reason you're there is because the system was geared yeah. up for you to be there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I left school in 1979. So, I mean, I think the marriage
2: bar only stopped in 74 or something so, yes, like yeah, that. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, it had gone... When I joined the central bank, which was a couple of years before that... It had gone, but most of the women that were getting married were still leaving because they got the grant to leave, which is actually basically just your pension entitlement. But the grant paid for all the deposits for the houses. Right. So not to leave meant giving that up.
0: Like even when I had my first child, which was 89, you know, there was still talked about whether will you stay or will Mm. you go after you have that child and even my mum sort of minded my kids and she would have been of the opinion that women should give up work until it was her first grandchild so it became an opportunity for her to have a grandchild Mm. so then her whole her Her whole (laughs) belief system changed utterly because it mattered to her but um, you did exceptionally well actually in banking I thought it was
2: funny to read that you said your typing course
0: was one of the best things you can fly through your novels yeah
2: yeah it was the most useful thing I ever did I mean I did all those banking exams and I did a whole load of other things yes. and actually learned to type Was the yes?
0: I, I did pensions exams I feel your pain I, <laughs> I worked when I left school I went to work in a life assurance company I spent yeah. 15 good years of my life thinking of dare in the book I gave some of the best years of my life to an insurance company yeah. but um, yeah I, I mean I was thinking that I mean you, you talk about actually writing
2: banking training manuals yeah, yeah. and if you could make those sexy well then you could write a book and I just thought that's brilliant. Well, I doubt that I actually made them sexy, but I did make them at least a bit more readable, which yes. I, you know, when you were talking about technical data and stuff like that, I mean, I don't know why it has to be so difficult yeah. to read. So I hopefully I made them more readable. And yeah, yeah. I do know that, and I lectured for a while in finance and I'm, some of the students got back to me afterwards, yes, I got my exams, thanks very much.
0: But I often wonder I was when I read that, are there some of those manuals there written by... She <laughs> never said, my name was never on them no. actually, no. No, no, no. That Gosh, just, they were just, and it you know. should be. So which brings me to something else that I do want to talk to you about as well, which is, like myself, you didn't go to university mm-hmm. when you left school. Certainly when I was doing my research, one of the articles, you had said, I mean, you've been pretty much writing a book a year for 25 years, which is no mean feat. Mm-hmm. But I think I read, and, and again, I'm paraphrasing that you said you couldn't see yourself doing a book a year forever, that you would like to do something that, I, I can't remember whether you said chapter Challenged you or something different. And you mentioned going to university Mm. uh, and studying maybe astronomy, Um, which is linked to your desire to
2: be an astronaut, bringing us back to the childhood (laughs) dreams. Yeah. I mean, I I just kind of thought I'd like to study something just. For the fun of it, you know, yep. and not not anything that you know that I that I was ever going to use in in my life. I'm not but, sure I see astrophysics or something like that as for the well, fun inter- of it. But. Interesting. With two of my nephews, studied physics. In, in um in college? Yeah, but I I kind of thought to myself maybe that would be just too challenging, you know, for my phalaxy years. Um, so I'm kind of thinking I might like to do because I have a house in Spain. Uh, I might do something about Spanish culture and and. Ah. and Also, maybe, you know, spend some time brushing up my Spanish and making my Spanish better.
0: So I have to say that going to university as a mature student is brilliant. (laughs) You have to do it. You have to make sure. Here I am giving you advice here. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing I would say is make sure that you pick a subject that fascinates you. Well, that's, that's the thing.
2: That's that's it. Just pick a subject that fascinates you. That's the thing. We say astronomy does fascinate me. Gosh, there's there's so much in it. Do you know there is a I think so an, much in it? Yeah, and I'm not sure that what I want is in the university course. Yes. Whereas Spanish culture and Spanish history fascinates me as well. So here's really interesting.
0: Here's an interesting thing that you can do. Well, certainly when I went now, it's good gosh, it's a while ago now since I went, two thousand and four I went. You know, I went to university by accident. I've talked about it before on this so so I won't delve into it now. But There's a lot of kids, school leavers, and they go to university because they have picked a course, you know, even things like medicine, you know, because they can get the points or they're Mm. smart enough or whatever. And they have actually no idea what they're going to be studying. Um, So I did choose psychology, um, but I didn't particularly know what it was while I was making the choice before I actually made it, you know, I read about it and I read what I would learn each year and what and I I could just feel the excitement, you know, in my stomach, in my gut. Oh, in year one, I learn about that and then I learn about that. and then Oh, my God, year three, they do. Oh, God, you know, so I was just excited reading what the course structure was going to be. When I gave up the day job, I became an actor and I did that because it's the human condition that interests me. And that's so psychology was kind of taking it that that next step. But in doing the undergrad, I did my undergrad degree in Maynooth actually, and I think this happens in certain other universities as well. I got on the psychology course, but you had to do two other subjects. Because in case you fail, the one you want to be your major. So that's a way to get a feeling, you know, that if you could do Spanish language, culture, physics, and something else yeah. or astrophysics, you know, that you yeah, can kind of get yeah. the feel
2: of it. I mean, I have done quite a bit of study of astronomy anyway. You know, I, yeah. I, I oh, mean, so you've done it for fun? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, then. Yeah, yeah, I have, and um, and I've gone out to various observatories at various times. And well. you have a, have a telescope in a your telescope home. at home.
0: And the clear skies are there really oh, well, clear there skies for
2: you? Yes, they're they're clearer, but the still too much light pollution I don't because okay. you really need to be somewhere where there is no light pollution. I last year when we could travel myself and my husband went down towards the south
0: in Fort Ventura. we stayed in a place where there was very little light pollution
2: oh my it's god. It's amazing isn't oh, it I mean the difference oh, that it makes you can't. Heavens uh, yeah. you know literally going oh my god. Yeah I know just- and I think it's, it's such a shame that we can only see a few pinpricks of stars now yeah. because I remember when I was younger and you could see them all and it does give you a sense of how unimportant yeah. you are you know when you look up at all that but now we look up and you don't really
0: no you don't see that you don't know, get that don't. sense of, of wonderment and you actually have a moment like that I do in, I in do, your book I do, yeah. Dara I do. actually looks up yeah. at the stars one of the places they go on their journey yeah, and yeah because there are places in the mountains yeah. where
2: there's no light pollution and
0: yeah, yeah and actually that's what I loved about your book actually. I love when a book takes you on a journey but also stirs memories from your own past mm. and your book did that quite a lot for me. The Stars one, you know, was one of them um, and also made me think, you know, I mean it's a thought-provoking book, you know, thinking about your life but um, the Windy Road one was one. I've been on those <laughs> windy Roads and, and that's scary. Yeah, and I remember yeah. I, I was very brave so I really admired Grace. Always when we go on holidays, my husband would do the driving and I have no desire to do it and I would be the navigator. But I did go to Cannes once, to, the film festival and we were at that time thinking we might buy somewhere and I went to visit the place myself which meant I had to rent a car and drive and yes I I don't know how I didn't kill myself because I came off a motorway and went the wrong way down one sometimes but yes there was that drive up and I went oh my god and then how am I going to come
2: down like it was like oh will I be stuck <laughs> kind of but actually once you do it once you've done it once you yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's a great I mean, sense of achievement you know the yeah. fear of these
0: things and you, and you do it is that book you know feel the fear and do it anyway yeah. or Nike have got the best slogan ever it's just, just do it, do it. Yeah. and I think you're kind of just such an inspiration the way you did just do it you just kind of gave up the day job I mean you wrote
2: while you were doing the day job which was pretty I did For a while, challenging too, mainly because I was so unsure of myself of whether I could do it or could finish it. But at this point, you had a few books written. Well, I had a couple of them now. I have to say, the first couple of books which were published by an Irish publisher, you would not be able to give up your day job. You right, know, you just couldn't. It, um, oh, in
0: terms of sales, and they were just yeah, published it, in the yeah. Irish
2: market, sort of thing. Yes, right, okay. So when the UK publisher approached me, then I said, Okay, right, okay, and I can't do both things. But I could have given up the day job after the first book was published in Ireland by the Irish publisher, but I just thought to myself, do you know, I, I, maybe I I wasn't I don't know whether I wasn't confident enough for myself, but I wasn't confident in them as publishers. Okay. So that's interesting. Yeah. So I, I kind of thought to myself, Do you know, what, I'll carry on working. I'll. But the thing was, once I started writing, I couldn't actually stop writing either. Right. So, so I was working and writing and working and writing. But you know, so you found your joy, which is yes, which I is did. lovely. I did. You know, you've yeah. you
0: found that
2: thing, that
0: time stands still and. I feel fortunate that I've kind of found that in a way too yeah. and I also would love to help other people try to find yeah. their joy. What comes to mind in terms of when you're talking about that, if I cast myself back to those times when we worked, you in the bank and me in, in an insurance company, is permanent and pensionable comes yeah. to mind. Yeah. You know, I mean I would have been told how fortunate I was that I had a permanent pensionable job yeah. and actually yeah.
2: they're unheard of now actually. that That's kind of gone again. And I have to say though, those, I've been to some retirement dues from for some of my friends. And when I hear of the pension that they're retiring with, I do go, oh my God. (laughs) <laughs> Why did I throw all that away? Um, <laughs> oh, but, but look no, at all I the don't. joy I, do. no, yeah, I don't. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you do kind of... Th- and they say, oh, well, you know, this is it. You're going to be getting this amount a year for the rest of your life. You wow. Know? I'm thinking, wow.
0: Yeah, wow. yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, well, I don't have the permanent and pensionable um, anymore
0: either. I jacked that in when I was in my early 30s to pursue well, an acting the same career. same as myself. Yeah,
2: yeah. and um, did take that risk. Um, but you have to... Do that because I, I do think so. Yeah, I can't stay doing something that to, to me, finance I was doing okay in it, but it was a job, you know. I didn't get up every morning going, Whoa, well, hey, yes, thank God I'm going into the, yes. the office. I, I never, you know. So, so once there was even the remotest possibility of being able to um, make a living out of writing, even though at that point. I wasn't sure because you know yes we had a couple of books published in Ireland but would they translate over to the UK yes. no idea would yes. it
0: and you? Ireland is a great book buying audience but it's still a very very small but it's still
2: very small you wouldn't make a living solely yeah. published in Ireland really yeah, yeah. And I you'd I be very fortunate to yeah.
0: yeah I hope I mean gosh with what's happened with Covid and everything I mean it's very challenging to know
2: what's going to happen with. well yeah and it's been a nightmare it's been a nightmare for the authors it's been a nightmare for booksellers I mean Eason's closed their stores in the north which is terrible because they are big booksellers in the north yes. you know they sold a lot of books I mean I think here a lot of the smaller indie bookshops are doing better than they thought because they've managed to reach out to their readers and, and they, people were buying and I saw a lot of that from, yeah. on social media people saying buy a book you yeah. know buy it so online there was, so, so there was some but having said that that's reaching out to their readers but that's yes. still not the same that's it's not the expanding either past and a lot of bookshops depend on Fall and they have a book in the window, and you say, Oh, I've heard about that, and there it is, I'll go in and buy it. So it's very tricky times, yeah. Yeah, but
0: I still think the only thing is, people used to say that Kindle and all those things would put an end to paper books. The thing is, I think it's a fundamental need of humans to have stories. I think it's how we solve problems, it's how we avoid problems. It's how we entertain ourselves. It's just so fundamental to who we are. To have that talent to be able to provide that for people, I think is, is wonderful. I feel very fortunate to have been able to talk to you and kind of pick your amazing brain. When I speak to my guests, I like to ask them, you know, what advice or something that you've maybe lived by in terms of around surviving and thriving in life. I mean, I know you mentioned around surviving. It's just, you know, being practical. But in terms of you have thrived as a as a writer, but yeah. also in your life. Reading about you and researching you I have found each interview very interesting Mm -hmm. and very honest. And and for me, and it's funny, there was another commonality I found. Honesty is the most important thing for me in any interaction or relationship. And you said you value in one of your interviews that honesty is one of the things that that you value. And I think you're very brave in current climate that you're still just being honest in your interviews because... I certainly feel that I have to be, and I don't, you know, I'm not a famous person like you, but I still, even just in my daily interactions, you know, say on social media or whatever, Mm. I feel that I have to curtail. I don't have to curtail what I say, but I feel that I do because I have become afraid of the consequences. Now, that's not something I felt, you know, even five years ago.
2: Well, I think social media has become a bit of a cesspit, you yeah, know, so I agree. So, I mean, I think curtailing yourself on social media is more it's self-preservation why, than, yeah. than not being honest, because like, I, I do think it's important to be honest. I, You know, when it comes to interviews and stuff, I'm not trying to create a persona for myself. I don't you care. You just are yourself. It's just like if you ask me something, I'll answer it. And if I don't know the answer, I'll say I don't know the answer. And I don't see why I should. Pretend to be something I'm Oh, not. I don't know. No. You know, uh, but like if, if people do that, and obviously there I are people who do that. I think some people do, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I'm not I'm not an influencer or whatever it is. Yeah, now. I'm just. But well, you see, who you book. are.
0: Your books influence people, but you're well, not yes. that other type but of an not, influencer. Yes, I'm,
2: yeah, I'm not that And I'm you're not.
0: not selling other people's stuff or, you know, no, it, it's, and it's I'm it's, not it's trying to
2: say have a lifestyle like mine or have a life like mine or, you know, I'm a, actually quite an ordinary person. Yes. Do you know? And so if somebody asks me questions, and answer them and you see where that goes and then and you're left to the mercy of the sub editors Well, well with that is headlines. one of the problems alright <laughs>
0: <laughs> but we i have a whole podcast on this yeah with Hilary Freeman oh, right. she writes young adult and she's also a journalist freelance journalist in the UK but basically she's been the victim of the sub editors headline i've been the victim of the sub editors headline you were quite recently yeah. the victim of the sub editors headline that i really think we should you know, have a petition that says, <laughs> at the top of an article, article written by <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so bad, ar- heading <laughs> written by. But I totally got you know what you were saying about Sally Rooney that she's such an amazing writer. Now imagine what well, she's going to be like when she's. Older. And you know, the
2: gas part about that is that our conversation about that was about thirty seconds of yes. most of our of the entire interview, and we were just we were actually talking about life experience in writing. So that was why I was saying. She's only in her 20s. Yeah. She's writing. It's young writing. She's writing about her 20s. But look, at, do you know what? But I,
0: it, I, it is the truth. And and I think, you know, it's important that it was said that the subheading was really just what I'd call clickbait. For listeners, basically, exactly that in the article. Sheila described how, you know, she's a great writer. And gosh, she'll be amazing then <laughs> as she gets life experience and wisdom yeah. and explores other themes and, yeah, and, yeah. and, and other topics sort of in a I can't wait sort of way. But I think the heading said something on the line up. Do It said I have it? she would be a
2: super writer when she's older She will be a super writer when she's older I looked at that myself and said oh my god
0: um, But what can you do I mean I've seen that those things myself for, for mine you know misrepresenting what you said and yeah. uh, oh there's that horrible sick feeling in your stomach do you get that well, are you d- good at no. saying well
2: I felt that because I, not for myself but I felt uh, you know for Sally Rooney because it's so patronising Yes and I thought to myself this girl reads that she'd be saying who is that patronising old cow and what she talks what she about I was imagining you know some relative saying have you read this what this witch is saying about Yeah, yeah. and
0: of course then it was the old against the young thing all
2: of that sort of of thing but fortunately most people who read the piece actually said and and there was quite a few people that said oh that's a terrible headline that's so unrepresented it's just
0: just that a lot of people don't realise that the journalist or even if you write a piece yourself an opinion piece you have no control over the headline headline, um, which is really quite shocking one or two things we're almost finished and I'm, I've, I've enjoyed every minute of this. <laughs> I hope you have. But you you had said something that I read that I thought was really rather interesting. I don't know if I have it here, but you said that with life and over experience, you learned what to say no to mm. and what to say yes
2: to. Um, well, Laura, possibly to that. that I'm better at saying no to. I don't always say no. But, you know, I think when you're younger, you're trying to please everybody all the time. Yeah. And it's really hard to filter out the things that you want to do or things that you think are interesting to do and things that you feel you should do um, or that you're being obliged to do. And I am better now at kind of looking at something and assessing whether I'm doing it out of, i mean and I will still do things out of a sense of obligation for sure, but something that I feel actually this is not for me and I am not going to do it. And I feel much better about that. And and that's not just about book things or worky type things. It's about everything, everything in life, whether it's family stuff or whether it's something with friends. or You know, when people say, oh, you know, go to the party that you don't want to go to. Yeah. And instead of trying to come up with some big, long excuse or then deciding in the end to go anyway, I kind of will say, you know, that's not going to be my thing and I'm not going to go. And I'll yeah. say that out straight to somebody and say, I can't go. Yeah. I, I don't want to go. Um, I hope you don't mind.
0: And do you think that's something that has come with... Because we're bombarded with such negative images of growing older, that that's something that comes with, with growing age. older.
2: Oh, I think so. Yeah. I think you don't care as much because well, you, you re- care more about yourself. I think when well, you, you realise well, somebody else's. Is- opinion of you doesn't really actually yeah. matter and also they'll have gone away and they'll have forgotten about it and you're still beating yourself up over something yeah. so you know I'm, I'm better at that and i'm also more confident about saying yes to things although i i did learn that in banking because the guys who were who maybe would not be qualified to do something would always say yes to yes. an opportunity they would never say no no not matter whether they had a clue or not um and whereas the women would kind of wait to see if they could do it. But like I did learn that in finance and it was one of the most valuable you, lessons. Oh, so you learned that quite early. I only learned that a few years ago. No, I'm better at saying yes than at no. But Learning to say no is the thing that I learned more recently. OK,
0: so I learned... I always found it very hard to say no. I still do in some regard. Mm. I'm getting much better at it. it, And I just did some work on myself in that regard because, you know, no, life is too short. I haven't got, you know, I haven't got loads of it to spare. I want to make sure it's doing things that speak to what I want to do. So I would have said loads of yeses before, but I would have said no to the wrong things. Yeah. You know, um, and I think it's exactly what you're talking about is... Uh, and I've said it a few times if I've been on panels now, even though I only learned to do it myself maybe five or six years ago, is to say yes first and then figure out how to do something because actually you may well find that you are perfectly qualified to do it. I mean, the person wouldn't probably have asked you if to do it in the first place could. if they yeah. didn't think that you could. It's just you have such a, a limited experience, you know, feeling of yourself or sense of but yourself that you a, don't realise. I think
2: that's a female thing. I do I too. think that's a female thing. And that's... That's why I'm saying I did learn it when I was working in finance. I had to take it out of finance and adapt it to my life outside and my writing life, for, which was a new thing for me. And, and obviously, I didn't know the group. I didn't know the dynamic. I didn't know anything. But I had written a book. but It was a kind of now would be a young adult book. You know, okay. And I had sent it off to, to a publisher and they called me back and said, we really like your writing but it's too young for us so if you were to write another book we might be interested in publishing it could you do that okay and I said yes right and then when I put the phone down I went "Ah." (laughs) yeah I said how am I going to do this I I wrote this book this was my book yeah and um, now what am I going to do I was curious to
0: know when I read that because I I did read that about you. I, I was curious to know what the book they said sort of know to, but now that makes perfect sense. It was yeah. a young adult book. It just wasn't for their publication. Yeah. Did
2: it ever get published as a no, young it adult? Didn't. No, didn't. I actually because it's so so long ago now. It was on um, floppy disk. <gasps> so, oh my goodness! So oh wow well I don't think I have the floppy they might be up in my attic I don't know and I don't yeah. think there's anything that Oh somebody be. somebody when
0: you're gone yeah. when you're gone a hundred years from now someone I'm will find attic. this floppy disk oh my god <laughs> Sheila Huffanigan's long lost work that was never published wouldn't that be lovely <laughs> <laughs> well it wouldn't matter anything to the, yeah. um, to the to the rest of us oh look it's been an absolute joy for me thank you for spending time I did ask you and then I never let you answer which is terrible but you've probably sort of covered some of it is Any advice that you would give to people, you know, for surviving challenges or
2: thriving in life? Well, maybe saying yes to things that are challenges, uh, you know, even if you're doubting yourself, still say yes. It's a bit like just do it, isn't it? It's the same thing because nobody will ask you a second time if you say no. Yeah. So so that's maybe a challenge. And maybe the other thing is is, is really don't worry about the calories and stuff so much. You know? oh. <laughs> just just chill, chill on the... <laughs> well, I'll just say
0: on that note, thank you so much. I could have talked all afternoon. It's been an absolute pleasure, Sheila Flanagan. Thank you. Don't forget to tune in on Thursday for another Super Brain booster shot. I've included links to Sheila's website and her brilliant book The Women Who Ran Away in the show notes for this episode. My name is Sabina Brennan and you've been listening to Superbrain the podcast for everyone with a brain. You can follow me on Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan or Instagram at Superbrain Podcast or at Sabina Brennan. If you love the show please like it, share it, rate it and subscribe to it on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember Say yes. Just do it. And don't count the
1: calories. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh